We're turning in the Word of God this morning to Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 42, and that's on page uh, 880 in the Church Bibles. Can I say thank you for the kind welcome? It's good to be here once again, and I do enjoy, we do enjoy coming down to Penzance and having fellowship with you. It was also great privilege for us last week to have your pastor preaching for our church anniversary weekend, and so thank you for letting him come down to us and minister God's word. It was really appreciated. Well, we're going to look at verse number 42 of Matthew chapter 27, and we read this. Let me read verse 41 to give the context. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save if he is a king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Well, in this passage, we have an instance where the enemies of Christ are making a claim that is actually wonderful truth. We have a number of these in the gospel accounts, and whilst we might expect the friends of Jesus to say good things about him, positive things about him, we find also that his enemies say things that we can say amen to as well. Let me give you some examples. At the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus and they are critical of him in the way in which he will have fellowship, he will eat and drink, and he will spend time with those who are described as being publicans and sinners. And they say of Jesus, this man eats with publicans and sinners. They are trying to criticize him. And yet that's a wonderful commendation of what he had come to do. He had come to meet with people, meet with people like you and I, at the very depth of where their sin had taken them. And so whilst they weren't intending it to be something positive, we can see something remarkable in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he meets with those who are at the edges of society. Another occasion, the temple guards They are sent by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus just after the resurrection of Lazarus. And we find that they come back, a bit like with their tail between their legs, and the Pharisees say, well, where is he? And they say, well, we haven't brought him. Well, why have you not brought him? And they said, well, no man spoke like this man has spoken. No man has spoken with the authority like this man has spoken with. And so these temple guards they are testifying to the fact that the words of Jesus are so wonderful and they have authority that the words of men do not have. We find a little bit later in the gospel account how the chief priest uh, would argue that it was better that one man died for the nation than that the whole nation were to suffer. And inadvertently, he's prophesying to the fact that Jesus would be the sin bearer. He would be the substitute. He would be the sacrifice. And because he died, many would live. He didn't intend it to be that way, but that is the way nevertheless. And then we have the testimony of Pilate. He's the governor of Judea, 
and he has Jesus brought before him so that he could be tried. And we find that he says on three occasions, I find no fault in this man. So an ungodly Roman governor declares to all that Jesus was innocent. A wonderful validation of Christ's integrity and his perfection. And then this same governor would testify that this is the king of the Jews. He doesn't have to say it, but he does say it. And so we have the gospel record recorded in many ways, both verbally and written, that Jesus is the king. This morning, we're going to look at another testimony, another piece of evidence from Christ's enemies that show us how wonderful our Savior is. And it's here in verse 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is a king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Have you ever said something that has been taken the wrong way? Perhaps been taken entirely the opposite way to which you have intended. Let me give you a little insight into our home. Nearly 11 years ago, Felicity was born, but she wasn't too keen to make an entrance into this world, and so Margaret had to have a caesarean. But before she had that, she was to have an epidural. Now, in my career as a nurse, I'd seen lots of these epidurals take place, and they had often gone very difficult. They weren't very easy, and they often had to be repeated. Well, take your mind to the delivery suite. Margaret's there, just about to have the epidural, and the anaesthetist is doing it, and it goes in first time without any hitch or problems. I said, that was painless. Well, that's not how it was taken. I meant that that went without any hitch. Well, for nearly 11 years, I haven't been... I haven't forgotten about this, and I haven't been allowed to forget about it because it continually comes up in conversation. Well, the anaesthetist wasn't too impressed. My wife wasn't too impressed. Nobody else in the delivery suite was too impressed. But I was trying to really say to the anaesthetist, you've done a good job and well done, but that wasn't how it was taken. If the chief priests were here this morning, they would be saying to us, well, we didn't mean you to take it this way, with the accusation that we were bringing to Jesus. We didn't want you to take it this way. We are trying to hurl insults on him. It's not some kind of confirmation. Well, whatever they may say now, the truth of what they said is real and evident for us. So we find that Jesus has been taken from Pilate's uh, judgment hall, the praetorium, he has succumbed to the mob mentality and he's actually handed over Jesus to be crucified. Before that, he has scourged him, he's ridiculed him, he's mocked him, he's hurt Jesus in so many ways. And now it's time for Jesus to make his journey from that judgment hall and head out of the city to Golgotha. 
Criminals were often required to carry the cross member part of the cross, and they would have to carry that to the place of their execution. Well, Simon of Cyrene, he has to be compelled to come and help Jesus. So they are heading out this execution party from Jerusalem to the place called Calvary or Golgotha, or as is known, the place of the skull. Significantly, this part of Jerusalem was a place of cursing, but also a place of sacrifice. For example, if you look, in the writer, look at the writer to the Hebrews, he speaks about Jesus going outside the camp. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Uh, through his own blood. And we're given the exhortation, let us therefore go outside of the camp and bear his reproach. We find the writer of the Hebrew uses the phrase outside the camp, and he's referring to a concept that's rooted in the Old Testament, for example, in Leviticus 24, how that God declared to Moses, bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. So in that instance, Somebody that was a criminal, somebody that had done something very terrible, blasphemy, for example, would be taken outside of the camp and they would be executed. Not in the camp, but outside. But the camp was also the place where a sacred offering was also offered. It was some distance away from the eastern tent of meeting. And if you looked at Numbers chapter 19, you see there the offering of the special red heifer, and that was to be done outside the camp. Likewise, when the offerings were made within the camp, in the tabernacle, the, or the ashes would then be deposited outside the camp. And so this outside the camp, this place of sacrifice, this place of offering, where Jesus is going, is very significant. He's going to die as a sinner, and yet he's also dying as a sacrifice. Now, this wasn't a private spectacle. It wasn't just for the officials overseeing all that was happening that day. It would be for the victims, it would be for the officials, but it'd also be for the public just to come and to enjoy the spectacle. And... The people that were crucified would be there, hanging and dying, and people would come by and ridicule and mock them. They would not have any dying in peace for those who were dying as by crucifixion. So the Lord Jesus Christ is now hanging. He's been crucified. His hands and feet have been nailed, and then he's hoisted up, and he's suspended in the air. And we find that from the gospel accounts, we find that he is there with two other criminals, two other malefactors, as the AV puts it, or two other robbers that we have in, in here. They are there because of crimes they've committed. And so the three of them on that day are suffering the judgment of crucifixion. And as people come by, they take their time to ridicule and hurl 
insults. Listen to what they say in the earlier parts uh, that precede verse 42. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. It wasn't just the crowd, wasn't just the chief priests and the people in that area at the time, it was also the other criminals that joined in this barracking and they reviled him as well. We read from Psalm 22. And the reason I read from that psalm is because it speaks of the sufferings of Christ, but also the way in which people would ridicule the one that was suffering. We see the psalmist writes, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despise the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Here is Christ surrounded by those who are ridiculing him. But we're just going to hone in upon this phrase that we have in verse 42. And we're going to look at this. The fact that from the testimony of these chief priests, they are declaring that Jesus is the saviour. He saved others. The second thing we'll look at is the way in which Jesus is a selfless saviour. And we'll look at the second part. Himself, he cannot save. And then the third part, he is a single-minded saviour. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Jesus is the saviour. He saved others. Throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, we find that he saved people. He met with and reached out to people who had made a mess of their lives by sin. He had compassion upon those that had needs. And those that came to him, he never once turned them away and said, you're too bad or I'm too busy. All that came to him, he received. When we think about some of the lives that he impacted, it is quite amazing that he would have such dealings with them. We could think about Zacchaeus, that man who was a fraudster. He was a loan shark. Those kind of imageries that we have today. He was doing a lawful business, but he was exploiting the vulnerable and taking money that didn't belong to him. And what does Jesus do to him? He tells him to come down out of the tree because he's coming to his house for a meal. And what happens to Zacchaeus? He is wonderfully, dramatically, eternally saved so that his life is unrecognisable to what it had been before. This man that stole is now giving away his goods. This man that exploited is going to repay those that he has caused harm to. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved this man. We could think about the demoniac, the man of the Gadarenes. There he is in a very terrible condition. How he's got there, we're not exactly told, but we can have some idea. 
But there he is amongst the graves. He's causing great fear, great terror to the people round about. And the Lord Jesus Christ meets with him. And after his meeting with him, this man is changed. He's now sat, seated, uh, seating in his, uh, sat in his right mind, and he's now fearing God. The Lord had mercy on him and saved him. We can see others that had the, the way in which sin has ruined this world. That's the reason why we have sin and disease and all the kinds of sorrow that is around today. You could think about the man that was paralyzed, had to be carried by his four friends. Oh, the effect of sin and the ruin of this world. And the Lord had mercy on him. He can now walk and he goes out carrying his bed. Lazarus, the man that was dead for four days, is now alive and appearing to people. We think about the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years under bondage, gripped and suffering so incredibly. The Lord had mercy upon her. And then Jairus' daughter, that little girl of 12 years old who had died, how she was raised. All that came to Christ, he saved. The Lord Jesus Christ said he didn't come to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. You might think, well, that's not very fair. Well, the problem is, is those who thought they were righteous thought that they were good enough. And they actually thought they didn't need to be saved. They didn't need a saviour. And so that is why Jesus is saying, I've come to call sinners to repentance. We're all in that condition. We all need a saviour. And so we find here that those that have been ruined by sin have experienced a wonderful, dramatic saving by Christ. And so when the chief priests and Pharisees say he saved others, we can say, amen, he has. Over and over again, he comes and delivers them. Listen to the language of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. In the life of the psalmist there, he goes from wallowing in that pit to now being established on that rock. And so these chief priests and these Pharisees, mocking Jesus, saying he saved others. Well, his very name means saviour. That was why he came he was to be called that name because he would save his people from, his sin, from their sins. Well, what a wonderful compliment this is from such unpleasant individuals. Now, what about us here this morning? Well, you may not be a Christian. You may not have experienced the saving work of Christ in your life. Listen to what the chief priest said. He saved others. You have one that is here in the scriptures that has an excellent track record of saving people like you. A wonderful track record of dealing with those that this world cannot deal with. He has a wonderful track record of lifting people, saving people, delivering people, and bringing them 
into his glory. Look at our, those that do profess to be Christians. Look at what he has done for them. They have been saved by the same gracious saviour. We're reminded in the book of Isaiah uh, to look unto him and be saved all the ends of the earth. This is the only one that can save. I can't save you. Your pastor can't save you. Your politicians can't save you. Any teachers that you may know and you look up to, they can't save you. Your doctor can't save you. Any Instagram followers that you have can't save you. Jesus can. And Jesus does. He saved others. But moving on, we see how Jesus is a selfless saviour. We read in verse 42, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. In some ways, that statement by the chief priest is true. And in some ways, that statement is false. Could Jesus have saved himself? In part, yes, he could have saved himself, or at least he could have been saved. If we look at the gospel accounts, you discover that there were a few occasions when people were so indignant with what they'd heard, so angry with the miracles that Jesus had performed, that they want him dead. In Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus preaching in Nazareth. And they are so incensed that he is the, the one that's being spoken of in Isaiah 61 that they want to take him to the top of the hill and throw him over the top. And what did we find there? How Jesus walked right through the middle of them and nobody could lay a hand on him. You can think about the time just after Lazarus was raised from the dead. I mentioned a little while ago about the temple guards coming out to arrest him. What happened? They couldn't because the words he spoke were with authority. And so they come with the intention of arresting him, but something held them back from doing it. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 18 records how that people came out to arrest him. And they, he says to them, well, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers, well, I am he. And they fall back and fall down. And this happens on three occasions. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he's being arrested, we find Peter... He gets very excited. He draws out his sword. He whips off the ear of Malchus, a servant of the high priest. And Jesus tells him to put up your sword. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So there was a sense in which Jesus could have saved himself. He could have called for 12 legions of angels to come to his aid, to come to his rescue. The hymn writer puts it this way, was it? The nails, O Saviour, that bound thee to the tree, nay, was thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. There's also a statement in which this statement is true. 
he saved others, himself he cannot save. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, if he had saved himself, would have gone against the whole purpose of his coming to earth. He would have gone against the will of his Father, and he had come to save sinners. And so there was no way that he could save himself. Listen to the words of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In order to save others, in order to save you, he couldn't save himself. If you're a believer here, let that sink in. Think about what your salvation has cost. It required him to stay on that cross. It required him to drink the dregs of God's cup of wrath in its entirety. Was it the nails? Was it the armed soldiers that were guarding him? No, it was his love for you that did that. And as he dies, he is giving himself a ransom. He's paying your penalty. It's not himself that he's thinking about. He's here doing all that was needed for you as his people. He is a selfless saviour. It's not about him. It's about his people and about doing his father's will. Well, the third thing, we find the taunts continue. And now they're going to say something that's going to try and evoke a response in him. They're provoking him. I don't know whether you've ever seen a video or you've watched people that keep goading an animal, a cat or a dog, and they keep poking it with a stick, looking for a reaction, looking to see what's going to happen. And eventually the, the animal will turn, it will try and bite or try and attack. And you think, well, that's quite natural, that's quite normal. We often feel like this when we are provoked, when we are uh, agitated by other people. That's our natural response. If somebody says, you can't do that, what do we think? I'm going to do that. Somebody says you don't have the abilities, you might think, well, I'm going to prove that person wrong. You might find that a student will be told in school you're not very good at this particular subject, and they think, well, I'm going to show that teacher that I can do this. And we can have an indignation rising up within us that we're going to show them and prove them wrong. So how is Jesus provoked? He's told... If you are the king of Israel, come down from the cross and we will believe you. This is a win-win scenario. He could be delivered from the pain of the excruciating crucifixion. And he would have the adoration and the belief of the people round about, vindicating who he said he was, what he'd come to do, it is very tempting for him to come down from the cross and to have the people believe him. 
very tempting. But had he done this, salvation would never have been secured. Because here he's not dying because of his own sin. He's not dying here because he wants to be an example to people. He's not dying here to evoke people to believe on him out of sympathy. He's dying here as a substitute and satisfying the justice of God on account of his people's sin. And so he has to die. He has to take their place. He has to drink this cup of God's wrath entirely. He cannot not do this. Jesus would never have been anywhere near the cross if he could have avoided it, and there was some other way. He could have hidden his time away in the countryside. Over and over again in the gospel accounts, we find how Jesus deliberately, fully aware of what's going to happen, goes to Jerusalem. He even tells his disciples exactly what he is walking into. And so he's not there because of a lapse of judgment on his behalf. On his behalf. He's not there because somehow his enemies have outwitted him. He is there because he must go to the cross. He must die for his people. And nothing would steer him off course. Nothing is going to interrupt or affect this mission. He is single-minded in this great act of mercy. However tempting it was to come down, he would not, because he came to do this mission of saving. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would not be deterred from the mission that he'd come to do. And so whilst the people here taunt him, if you do this, then we will believe, he must ignore that taunt and ignore that potential in order to die. He would die to bring the, just, the unjust to the just to bring us to God. Here they are, passing by these religious leaders, mocking him, and yet they expose great gospel truth. He saved others. Himself he could not save. And then they taunt him. If you are the Christ, if you're the King of Israel, come down from the cross and we will believe you. He doesn't. He stays there because the work was still yet to be completed. He still hadn't uttered those amazing words. It is finished. Well, these are the words of Christ's enemies. These are what, this is what they said. There's a day coming for each one of us when we must stand before God and give an account of our lives before him. And everyone on that day will give an account and testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. How much better it is to know him as Lord and Saviour in this life, bow down and serve him for all of our lives than to get to the point where we're in eternity and we'll acknowledge who, who he is and how great he is that he is Lord and yet then be cast into everlasting judgment. He is the one that we are to come to. He saved others. Can you say, 
He has saved me. Amen.